You are now listening to the Nothing But Backboard Podcast with your host, Joey Jergo. Hi, hey, hello. It's your host, Joey Jergo, and we are on episode number seven of the Nothing But Backboard Podcast. And of course, lucky number seven, because today we are talking about the NBA playoffs that has just commenced with the game ones as of a few minutes ago. I am super excited about this episode because not only are we in the best time of the year as far as the NBA goes with playoffs, there's a lot to dive in. We'll kind of break down game ones and then also looking forward as to my analysis and kind of throw some ideas as far as how certain teams can adjust going forward into these series. And I tell you what, um, for all you guys that are watching on YouTube, yep, there is a brand new thing I added to this office that is a very fun Dirk Nowitzki mantle that I got. I'm super excited about that. Have to add more stuff, so hopefully, in the upcoming episodes, you'll start seeing this wall filled more and more with memorabilia, jerseys. Probably switch some of these out. I'm super excited about it, but of course, you guys know the deal. If you guys are listening and watching on YouTube, you know the deal. Smash that like button, subscribe it, share it with friends. Please subscribe to this channel. I'm really looking forward to it. Of course, we're going to try to throw some new ideas because I have to tell you guys this, and I'm super excited about this. The first thing. I'm done with finals, so that means I'll have more free time to watch basketball and actually watch the entire game without being distracted about writing finals, assignments, all that good stuff, and I'm really looking forward to certain ideas and concepts that I want to do for this channel and for the podcast. We'll probably do some live watch-alongs. We kind of hang out as if it were normal and just kind of break down, you know, segment-by-segment, game-by-game possession by possession, all that good stuff that we like to do when we watch basketball is kind of dive into the X's and O's and kind of break down the minds of players and coaches, what's going on. Because, of course, with the playoffs, best of seven series, all that stuff going on, it's all about adjustments. So, again, this is why it's really fun as from a coach's standpoint, for me, kind of seeing the adjustments, how players, teams, schematic stuff that's going to change that hopefully will lead to certain team success, unless you're the Clippers, obviously go Mavs. But, again, if you're watching this on YouTube, as I mentioned before, hit that like button. Please subscribe to this channel, share it with your friends, share it with you-know-who, anybody that you know. And, of course, podcast listeners, you can find this on Google Podcasts, Spotify, Red Circle, and any other podcasts. Most of those will have this, including the previous six episodes. So I'm really excited to get into today's because, of course, as I mentioned before, we just wrapped up the last game one of the NBA playoffs with the Memphis Grizzlies upsetting the Utah Jazz. But, of course, we're going to start at the very beginning and kind of break down how certain teams could make adjustments going forward into game two and kind of break down game one's obviously look at certain X factors and certain guys that need to step up in order for their teams to succeed going forward in the series. So without further ado, let's start off with probably the game of the of the first game ones of the weekend, which is the first one between Miami and Milwaukee. And the reason why we talk about this, of course, if you guys know from last year, Milwaukee, number one seed in the Eastern Conference, best record in the NBA, gets eliminated in the Eastern Conference semifinals last year to the eventual Eastern Conference champion Miami Heat, and they're back at it again in the 3-6 matchup, which starts off the first games on Saturday. And 
really the big thing that I took away from that game, especially if you look at it from Milwaukee and Miami's perspective, unless your name was Duncan Robinson, three-point shooting was not really your thing. And I mean, even Gordon Drogic to a certain extent. But as we kind of look at the stats, so again, final score of that game was 107-109 Milwaukee. And of course, the big highlight of that game was the Chris Middleton game winner in overtime, which of course was led by some late game baskets in the fourth quarter. Of course, Jimmy Butler tying the game at 99 to force overtime. But if you kind of look at the box score, and again, some of the big hitters for Miami, Jimmy Butler, Bam Adebayo, and again, unless you were Duncan Robinson or Gordon Drogic for that matter, it was not a good it was not a good day for Jimmy Butler. He shot four of twenty two from the field. Two of nine from the three. He finished with seventeen points, ten rebounds, eight assists, which again, as far as stat line, you know Jimmy Butler's gonna fill the stat sheet. But as far as his efficiency, as far as scoring, again, when you look at Jimmy Butler in the playoff run last year for Miami, he led the team in points. He led the team in rebounds, led the team in assists, steals, minutes played. He pretty much covered all of the grounds for Miami when they made their run to the NBA Finals, and it was not a good start. So, obviously, when you look at Miami, it starts with Jimmy Butler. Obviously, he's going to be bringing it on both ends of the floor, in particular on the defensive end. Of course, there was a lot of times in the first quarter where he ended up switching on Giannis in the post, and there was one possession that Jimmy Butler pulled a chair on Giannis. Giannis ended up missing the shot. But, of course, Jimmy Butler... In order for Miami to, if they want to advance to the round and again upset the Milwaukee Bucks yet again, it's going to have to be Jimmy Butler being more productive as far as a score. But again, Duncan Robinson, 7 of 13 from the field. But let me clarify that. It wasn't 7 of 13 from the field, he was 7 of 13 from the three point line. All of his attempts were from the three point line. He finished with 24, 3 of 3 from the foul line. But. Duncan Robinson, of course, if you're Milwaukee, it's a lot easier said than done. But if you're Milwaukee, please try to force Duncan Robinson to put the ball on the floor or get the ball out of his hands. Of course, watching the game, I I believe majority of the time, DiVincenzo was chasing Duncan Robinson. Middleton was chasing Duncan Robinson. And of course, if anybody knows how to defend a shooter is you need to be attached to the hip, especially a guy like Duncan Robinson that's going to be moving off screens. Try to force that guy, if you're Milwaukee, that's an adjustment I would do if you're Milwaukee, is try to make him put the ball on the floor. Again, easier said than done. One of the best shooters in the league. I We'll see what happens. That would be an adjustment if I might boot and holzer. Um and again, I talked about Jimmy Butler and his lack of production, but Bam Adebayo also was not his typical self. He was 4-15 from the field. He finished with 9 points, 12 rebounds, 5 assists, 3 steals. But especially in this series, I, I think Bam does have a favorable matchup, especially against Brooke Lopez, although Brooke Lopez is a very good defender. He's a very solid defender. But with the skill set that Bam has, and if Miami's looking to force the tempo and push the pace, I think Bam will find easier baskets being able to get out in transition. And then in the half-court set, against got to be Jimmy Butler. But, of course, Bam has to take care of his matchup against Brooke Lopez. So, 
that being said, I'm looking at it from Miami's perspective. In order for them to even the series tomorrow, so that'll be the game tomorrow, if you're Miami, you have to get Jimmy Butler going early. You're not going to ask Jimmy Butler to be a three-point shooter. Again, you leave that to Duncan Robinson. You leave that to Gordon Drogic. You leave it to even Tyler Hero, Kendrick Nunn. And that's another guy that I think may need to step up for Miami in order to even the series because... And you'll, you'll probably see this theme a lot when it comes to the teams that ended up losing their game ones is bench production. So looking at Tyler Hero, again, he only played 19 minutes. 2 of 10 from the field, 2 of 5 from the three-point line. He finished with 10 points. But of course, last year in the bubble, in the playoffs, Tyler Hero was that number two guy. At times, number three, with Drogic being that number two before he got hurt in the finals. But... Tyler Hero, as far as a production goes, we know Tyler Hero is a guy that gets buckets, and that's got to be what he has to do when he comes off the bench. Being able to create his own shot, create shots for others, Tyler Hero has to be that guy. And I'm looking forward to see what Eric Spolscher does going into Game 2 if he digs more into his bench with the guys like Hero Andre Iguodala, Dwayne Dedman, and of course, I mean, if it wasn't for Gordon Dragic who finished with 25 and it was a team high 25, if it wasn't for that, that might not have been as close of a game as it is, but it wasn't like both teams shot the lights out, because if looking at Milwaukee, you look at their, their top three guys, Middleton, Giannis, Drew Holiday. Middleton, 10 of 22, 27 points. As I mentioned, the game winner at the end of overtime. But, I mean, it wasn't like he shot the ball particularly well. And Giannis was 10 of 27 from the field. And probably the more alarming thing, which is, again, stuff we've kind of talked about in previous episodes of the podcast. And it's probably going to be an ongoing issue for Milwaukee and for Giannis going forward, is he was 6 of 13 from the free throw line, including uh, a 10-second violation, a free throw violation that occurred at the end, towards the end of the fourth quarter. But that's going to be the one thing that if you're Milwaukee, that's probably going to be a lot more alarming because as you've seen in the past, whether it was in the series last year against Miami and even to an extent the first round series last year against Orlando is that teams will elect to force Giannis to the foul line. And they'll dare Giannis to beat them at the foul line. Of course, they're going to try to force him to be a three-point shooter. But also, if Giannis is not going to convert at the foul line, that's an advantage for a team. And especially a team like Miami that will pack a wall. And the reason why I'm going to, I'm going to really illustrate the wall is because you're going to see that in the theme with the series in the Washington-Philadelphia series, as well as the Memphis-Utah series with certain players. And we'll, we'll get to those names in a bit. But what a wall is, especially from a scheme, defensive scheme point, is a guy like Giannis, a guy that wants to get to the rim, that wants to get to the paint, who lives and breathes in the paint, because no one can really stop Giannis. What a wall does defensively is that you have multiple defenders forming a wall which closes the penetrating gaps which then forces him to kick it out to shooters, to other players, but really pack pack in the paint and really force that player, which was which is Giannis in this particular standpoint, 
to either give the ball or force a tough shot in the paint. So, and that was something that was really effective for Miami last year in the series is that they really packed the paint, formed the wall, and Giannis wasn't really able to get things going. But what really helps Milwaukee, which is a big reason why they got Drew Holiday during the offseason, is you can, you're able to play Giannis a lot more off the ball. And not only is Drew Holiday going to help alleviate that, but as you've noticed throughout the regular season, is that Giannis is probably not going to be the go-to guy unless he's got it going. If you're Bootenholzer, if you're Milwaukee, your go-to guy, the guy that's going to get you buckets in the closing moments of a game is going to be Chris Middleton because Chris Middleton can score at all three levels. He's a very good three-point shooter. He's got a really good mid-range, probably top five, top ten mid-range game. And he can get he can get himself to the cup. Pretty big body, can get where he wants to with favorable matchups. And you kind of saw that in the closing moments of the fourth quarter in overtime that Middleton is going to be the guy that is going to be the one to make those plays, which then puts Giannis on the block, and he has his matchups there. So I think if you're Milwaukee, in order to sustain success going into Game 2 and going further on into the series, if they eventually advance to the series going forward, you probably want to put Giannis more so off the ball in a half-court standpoint. As far as like transition and fast break, oh, absolutely. Give that person the ball. Give Giannis the ball. No one's stopping him in the open floor. But as far as half-court goes, put Giannis on the block. Let Drew, let Middleton work a pick-and-roll with Giannis, pick-and-pop with Lopez, spread the floor, and then force the defense to have to stop Giannis when he's already set on the block. So, my prediction for Game 2, I think Butler will probably have a bounce-back game. I think Bam will be a little bit more productive, but I'm still going to take Milwaukee Game 2 because, again, as I look at Milwaukee, as far as their three-point shooting, they didn't shoot the ball particularly well. They shot 5-31 of from the three. It's not a very good percentage. And Mike Bootenholzer teams will look to shoot threes because I – if I were to really reflect on one play that kind of almost hurt Milwaukee a bit was there was a play in the second quarter where Bryn Forbes forced up a shot. They got an offensive rebound. I believe it was Bobby Portis got an offensive rebound, kicked it right back out to Forbes, and then he forced up you know, uh, top of the key three when could have easily swung the ball around and gotten open looks. And I think that's going to be the key for Milwaukee. As far as the three-point attempts that they take, if they get more quality, wide-open looks, they will convert. And I think that's going to be the key factor going forward for Milwaukee going into Game 2. So, again, I'm going to take Milwaukee. It'll be another close one. Will it be in overtime? Probably not. But I, I will say for Milwaukee, they'll take Game 2, go up 2-0, going down to Miami. But as far as X-Factors go, and I kind of alluded to their names a little bit, as far as guys that could make an impact. And when I say X-Factors, obviously I'm not going to name the obvious names like Giannis, Butler, Middleton, Holiday, Adebayo. As far as certain guys that could step up and make plays to help ascend their team to success, when I look at Miami, and this is the name I mentioned before, Tyler Hero. Because Tyler Hero... Since the bubble last year has kind of been hit or miss throughout the entire year, of course, he's been dealing with injury. Health and safety protocols throughout the regular season has kind of 
bit him in the butt a bit as well. But as far as what Tyler Hero can do, again, Tyler Hero on certain nights can get you 20-25. And that's something that Miami needs because, again, outside of Drogic, there wasn't a whole lot of bench production. I mean, Kendrick Nunn had 10 points, but it wasn't like they were... It was kind of a quiet 10 points. But for Tyler Hero... He's a guy that can get things going for Miami. He's a guy that is another shot creator on the floor. When you look at the second unit with Drogic, with Kendrick Nunn, that's going to have to be a guy that Miami probably should look to as far as getting their offense going if they're struggling. But that's got to be on Tyler Hero in order to make things happen. And if you're Milwaukee, I look at a guy like Dante DiVincenzo. Now, Dante DiVincenzo, when you look at the starting five, as far as scoring options, he's going to be number five. Because obviously you got Giannis, Drew Holiday, Chris Middleton. Those are your top three. Not in that order. But you got Giannis, Holiday, Middleton, and then Brooke Lopez, who helps stretch the floor for Milwaukee. So that, again, that opens up that entire restricted area, 12 to the, the RA, for Giannis to go to work. But of course, if Miami does what I think they might do, probably more if they switch and there's a favorable matchup for Giannis in the post, someone's going to double off. And if there's somebody you're going to double off out of those other four guys on the floor, it's probably going to be off DiVincenzo's man. So that's got to be DiVincenzo. And he's proven at certain points throughout the year that he's able to knock down threes. Now it's just whether or not he produces it on the floor. So again, Tyler Hero, Dante DiVincenzo are going to be guys I'm looking to as far as X-Factors for this Milwaukee-Miami series. Again, all of these series I'm really looking forward to, some of them could go either way. This is no exception. I think for a lot of people, this was a favorite as far as a, as an upset, as far as a lower seed beating the higher seed. Because again, as history has proven it, Miami has knocked out Miami. Or sorry, Miami's knocked out Milwaukee last year for their run to the finals. And it's it's really on Miami, maybe, as far as whose who's game it is to be. But it really, it's going to be Milwaukee. Are they still able to respond? Are they going to be able to shoot the ball better, especially from the three? And can Giannis knock down free throws? Time will tell. So that is... That was the first game on Saturday, and as we go into the second game, and this is this one's more, you know, home felt is the Dallas Los Angeles Clippers game, game one, and again, second time, second consecutive year that Dallas and the Clippers match up in the playoffs. And if you guys recall from the bubble last year, a lot of talk going into the series was. Can Luka adjust to the physicality of the Clippers? Because, of course, they had a lot of guys that they can throw at Luka. Kawhi, Paul George, Patrick Beverly, Marcus Morris. Those four guys are still in the Clippers. And if you guys watched game one, nothing changed. Nothing changed as far as Luka being able to get to his spots, being able to do what Luka does. And that's just produce Luka magic. So, 113-103, Dallas takes game one in Staples Center. And before I continue with this talk, I I just have to say this because I keep mentioning the bubble and then this year. As cool as the environment was as far as the bubble was last year, 
kind of felt like an AAU environment where if you're a team that goes and travels, it's really just you and your teammates in the gym, relatively empty. You guys get to produce that that energy, produce that noise for your team. Whereas now we're kind of back to where things are normal and being in an arena that definitely takes things to a different level as far as that energy goes. And we'll talk about one game in particular in a little bit as far as what I'm talking about as far as like that energy and that like that live feel of an actual crowd there like hanging on each and every single play, each and every single move that you make. But again, game one, five seed Mavs beat the Clippers 113 to 103. And really, this was despite the fact that KP Christoph Rosinga shot 413. And granted, a lot of those shots that Porzingis took were good looks that he didn't knock down. And of course, that was going to be one of the bigger question marks, not only of the regular season, but I think with this series in particular, was how effective KP was going to be because that was the big what if as far as Mass fans, as far as last year's series goes, if Christos Rosingas didn't get ejected in Game 2, if KP was healthy for the rest of the series... We might have been looking at Dallas advancing to the semis. We don't know. But now that we know that KP is relatively healthy, he didn't have a good game one. Yet, Luke is still there for the Mavs. And, again, if you look at Luka's stats, and let me kind of break this down for you. So, Luka, 11-24 from the field, 5-11 of 11 from 3. He finished with 31, 10 boards, 11 assists. So, another triple-double, his third triple-double, playoff career triple-double in seven games. That's pretty impressive. But of course, I at least for me, and I know a lot of people kind of mention this to me, and it's like my one kind of withdraw as far as Luka goes is his free throw shooting. For a guy that gets to the line as often as he is, and I don't expect that to stop, especially in this series, because Luka... When he can just get to his spots at his own pace, he will find himself at the line. But shooting 4 of 7 from the free throw line, and one of the interesting stats that I found was in late February, Luka was shooting approximately 80% from the free throw line. Since then, he was shooting 64% from the free throw line. Now, five of, 4 of 7 from the free throw line, that's about 57%. That's not, that's not going to cut it, especially for a guy that can easily get 30 in this series. He averaged 31 last year in the series against the Clippers. Converting at the foul line is going to be something that he's going to have to do going forward if the Mavs are going to continue with this momentum and possibly upset the Clippers. So that's one thing I'm looking at as far as what could be better about Luka's game. And I think that's maybe the one takeaway and probably the one negative about Luca's game right now is his inefficiencies from the free throw line. So looking at the maps again, Tim Hardaway Jr. has stepped up, especially in the second half of the regular season, and it hasn't changed in game one. Shot eight of thirteen from the field, five and nine from the three point line, finished with twenty one. So Tim Hardaway Jr. has stepped into that solidified number three role. And I think that was one of the biggest question marks for the Mavs going into the season, especially after the Mavs traded away Seth Curry for Josh Richardson, who was going to be that solidified number three option behind Luka and behind Porzingis. And Hardaway at times has stepped up and been the number two, 
especially when KP's been out, when he recovered earlier on in the regular season with his knee injury. And even at times when Luka was out, especially in a game against Detroit where Tim Hardaway averaged over four or scored over 40 for his career high against Detroit, Hardaway has finally gotten himself into a place now where he's shooting the ball well, scoring the ball well, and he's providing that punch whether he was on the bench or now kind of being solidified as that that starting two guard alongside Luka. So that's on the map side. As far as the Clipper side, and of course when you talk about the playoffs and you talk about the Clippers, everyone's always going to talk about playoff P, the pandemic P, Paul George. And there were times, granted, he finished with 23 points, shot 8 of 18, but he shot 2 of 8 from the three-point line. But you kind of notice there are times where he's been a bit indecisive as far as just being more aggressive, getting to the rim. Because Paul George still is a top 10 two-way player in the league. He can score at all three levels. Probably be guarding the best player on the opposite team, and especially with the lineup that the Clippers have when they line up Kawhi, Paul George, Marcus Morris, and Patrick Beverly. That's four guys, as I mentioned, that you can throw at Luka. And you can also throw at Tim Hardaway Jr., but Paul George is obviously going to be the guy that's going to get the most ridicule as far as is he going to step up? Is he going to be the guy? Because, again, just for people that have forgotten, has Paul George ever done anything good in the playoffs? Let me just wind it all the way back eight years ago to when he was in Indiana. So again, when Paul George was in Indiana, that was a team that took the heat to a seven-game series in the Eastern Conference Finals and met up against Miami with LeBron, with D-Wade, with Chris Bosh in the Eastern Conference Finals in back-to-back seasons. Paul George is capable of doing that. And I think the expectation for Paul George fans and for Clippers fans is that that's not the same guy that they're seeing now. Now, granted, he'll probably have a bounce-back game on Tuesday, but as far as what the Clippers can do, and not to not to you know step on anyone else's toes, but Kawhi Leonard, 9 of 22 from the field. He finished with 26, 10 boards, 5 assists, 4 steals, including a super nasty poster on Maxi Kleba, which... To me, it's made me laugh a lot because after he jammed it on Maxi, him, Morris, and Paul George all just mean mugged and screamed at Clip. Which, in a regular season game, and, I, and I'm trying to think of this from an optimistic, you know, glass half empty perspective, because it's in the playoffs, all three of them screaming in a regular season situation, whack somebody with a T. But because it's the playoffs, they let that thing go. And so, with that being said, as far as those two guys, Paul George and Kawhi Leonard, obviously they're going to put up points, but I think the big question is is the efficiency. Because Kawhi Leonard in last year's series against the Mavs, he averaged over 33, but it was his efficiency on all three levels. Shot over 50% from the field, shot over 40% from the three-point line, and shot close to 90% from the free throw line, and he was efficient. Game one, neither of those two guys you would consider a super efficient 26 and 23. And for the Clippers, again, you look at a guy like Rajon Rondo, who they acquired in a midseason trade for Lou Williams. Rajon Rondo was kind of deemed the guy to kind of help 
take the Clippers to that next step as far as here we have a guy that will be a primary distributor so we can get guys like Paul George, guys like Kawhi Leonard, guys like Reggie Jackson in order for them to you know, get quality looks. Rajon Rondo is going to be the guy that set the table for him. And so when you look at his game yesterday, 23 minutes, 11 points, four boards, four assists, not a typical Rondo playoff game. So if I'm the Clippers, as far as their X-Factor, I know I kind of talked about X-Factors not being the star players, but really it's going to be Paul George as far as the X-Factor for the Clippers, as far as them taking that next step, maybe rebounding and evening the series game two on Tuesday. Is Paul George has got to be winning his matchups. He's got to be the second best player, not only on the Clippers, but to a certain extent the second best player on the floor. So he's got to shoot the ball better. He's got to be a lot more aggressive and not overthinking. I think that was the problem is that there was a lot of clouded thoughts in his head. There was a lot of uncertainty as far as what he was doing on the floor last year, which gave him a lot of criticism. But Paul George has got to be the second best player and maybe to an extent may have to be the best player for the Clippers in order for them to even the series. And then for the Mavs, again, I talked about Tim Hardaway stepping up. I talked about Luka just being Luka. Really, to me, as far as the X factor for the Mavs, and the reason why I say Josh Richardson, again, if you're a Mavs fan, a lot of head scratching happened when the trade was made during the offseason for Seth Curry for Josh Richardson. Obviously, Josh Richardson, not the shooter Seth Curry is. Josh Richardson, not the offensive player that Seth Curry is. But what he is is a much better defender, but he's also a quality three-point shooter. And throughout the regular season, Josh Richardson hasn't really hit a certain stretch of games where he was producing on both ends of the floor. So I think for Josh Richardson, being slotted to the bench, where he's coming off the bench, Tim Hardaway Jr. providing that extra offensive firepower to the starting unit, for the second unit, especially when Luka's off the floor. Obviously, they got Jalen Brunson. Jalen Brunson's going to be a quality point guard, quality ball handler for that second unit when Luka's off the floor. But I think Josh Richardson's also got to be a guy that provides some offensive scoring punch off the bench for the Mavs. So, I look at those two guys. Josh Richardson, Paul George. Let me know what you guys think about all these predictions, X-Factors, what you guys really think about it. As far as Game 2... As far as Game 2 goes and what I think may happen, I I don't see Luka having an off night. Because I feel like although his three-point shooting may or may not still be there for Game 2, he'll still find his way to the rim. He'll find himself just attacking the cup. But the one guy, and I've mentioned him, the one guy that I'm looking at to step up for the Mavs is going to be Porzingis. I think Porzingis, again, when you look at his 4 of 13, again, out of those 13, I would say all but two were really good looks, wide open looks. I see him converting that because outside of Luka, I think KP is going to be the biggest problem for the Clippers as far as matching up. Because, of course, yeah, you have Kawhi you can throw at Porzingis. Of course, you have Paul George and Morris and Zubats and all of these other guys from the Clippers. 
But someone else has got to guard Luka. Someone else has also got to guard Tim Hardaway Jr. And if those two guys get it going, then you have to throw George Leonard towards them, which then leaves Porzingis to win his matchups. And again, I don't see Porzingis struggling yet again. So not only is my my heart saying this, but also my head's telling me that Dallas leads the Staples Center up to zero against the Clippers, going to the American Airlines Center with the series lead over the Clippers. So again, that was game one, the second game of the Saturday slate. As we move on, the third game probably has the most intrigue just for one team, but third game was the Celtics versus the Nets. And the reason why I say only one intrigue team as far as people's interest was, of course, the Nets because James Harden has returned. And as mentioned, it's only been nine games that the big three of Harden, Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving have played together. And so going into that game, obviously the big questions were going to be, how are they going to be cohesive? Was there going to be you know, a smooth transition getting Harden back into it? But not only that, but of course they had that midseason acquisition of Blake Griffin, who they've moved to the center now. So when you look at their starting lineup of Griffin at the five, Durant at the four, Joe Harris at the three, Kyrie and Harden playing, you know, kind of dual point guard for the Nets. How was it going to work, especially come playoff time, as far as how the ball was going to be distributed? And as you've kind of noticed throughout the regular season, Harden has had no issues as far as being more of a deferred, you know, decoy at times, distributing the ball, because especially since he went to Brooklyn, at one point in time, he was leading the league in assists. And so, of course, for Brooklyn, those three guys got it going. They scored 82 or 104. And again, when I say 104, that's obviously, in today's standards, a low-scoring game. Relatively speaking, that's a low-scoring game, especially for a team that has that much firepower. But again, Kyrie, Durant... And Harden combined for 90 of the 104. So there's no issues there as far as for the Nets with those big three. Maybe the big concern, maybe for those guys, they combined 5 of 24 from the three-point line. KD, 1 of 8, and then both Kyrie and Harden shot 2 of 8 from the three-point line. And I think that's going to be... One one talking point for me as far as the Nets go, and something I'm really looking forward to, just how it all unfolds for the Nets, is late-game situations, how are they going to get their looks? Because they can easily get quality looks, especially with those three guys. Those three guys are, you can honestly say, are all top 10 one-on-one players. But the problem is, is that when one guy has the ball, the other two guys kind of taking them out of the element and especially in certain instances I think there was one possession where Harden did have a mismatch but there was no movement no screens it was just Harden going isolation and that led to not the most quality of looks for Brooklyn and so I'm really curious if Steve Nash and that coaching staff if they end up making adjustment to where if it's Kyrie or Harden bring the ball up if they involve Durant more as a ball screener and getting 
switches for those other guys in order to get better quality looks because I think that might be the most effective offense for Brooklyn in the late game situation. And the reason why I bring that up, and I've kind of made this a point for certain people as far as when Kevin Durant went from OKC to Golden State, and that might be still like a sour subject for certain people as far as Durant leaving OKC to go to greener pastures in Golden State. When you looked at OKC, especially in that last season with Durant and Westbrook, in late-game situations, Durant was bringing the ball up and trying to create offense from pretty much the half-court line. So you're looking at Durant trying to go one-on-one from 43 feet almost every single possession. And the same thing with Westbrook. Just bringing the ball up and then just going one-on-one. If you guys know, as far as a team game like basketball, you want to get easier looks. And trying to go one-on-one every single possession, especially with teams that have pretty much game planned to stop you, that's not going to be effective. But when you saw Durant in Golden State, there were times where he was the, you know, he was a decoy for Steph and Clay, and Steph Curry even at times in Golden State was probably the world's greatest decoy because it's like, oh, Steph's coming off the ball screen or coming off an off-ball pick, but then that would leave someone else open. What you've seen throughout this regular season is that everyone's so focused on Steph coming off doubles or triple screens. The same thing with Clay that it would leave someone else open. I think for Brooklyn. If they're able to do that more often where they're just getting a little bit more movement rather than just settling with, okay, just go one-on-one, nobody move, just spot up. I think for Brooklyn, that's going to be more effective, not only for this series, because I think this might be the most predictable of all the series as far as who's going to win it. Because, of course, as we go on to the the other side of the coin with Boston, of course, they're without Jalen Brown, who's out for the rest of the year with his left thumb injury. For Boston, obviously it's going to be solely put upon Jason Tatum to be the guy. And so with that being said, I'm going to dive into Boston stats as well as my X-Factor, and it's going to be Jason Tatum. And I know, again, I've talked about X-Factors not being the best player on the team, but for Jason Tatum to give Boston the best chance, he has to be the best player on the floor. And again, that's saying that with having Durant, Kyrie, James Harden on the other side of your opposition. Jason Tatum has to be the best player on the floor. And so Tatum shot 6 of 20 from the field. He got to the line 11 times, shot 9 of 11, finished with 22. But again, if you watch the playing game against Washington where he went for 50, Tatum was able to take over games and get his looks and converting them. I think Tatum in this series, especially with certain matchups to where they end up switching guys like Kyrie on Tatum or switching Harden on Tatum or switching Landry Shamit when he comes off the bench. I, I think Tatum has to win those one-on-one battles. And even extent has to go after Durant, but of course he's got to convert and be that 30-plus point score because when Jalen Brown was with Boston and they had both of them, you could argue throughout the regular season that Jalen Brown had the better year. He was the better player for Boston for this season alone than Tatum. As far as skills go, I think Jason Tatum's the more skilled out of those two. But really to harp on it, 
Jason Tatum to give Boston the best chance to even make this a series that goes beyond five. They may get one. Tatum has to be their best player. But another guy that they need to look at too is Kemba Walker, who shot five of 16 for 15 points. So if you guys do math, 16 shot attempts, 15 points, that's less than one point per attempt. That's not that's not good efficiency. So Kemba also has to step up as well. And I think the, the one bright spot for Boston from that game, from that game one, was Robert Williams, who had 10 points, 9 rebounds, 9 blocks. Franchise record for most blocks. And I mean, if you look at long-term, as far as how Boston can maybe steal a game or two, it's going to have to be their centers. So it's going to be the front court guys of Tristan Thompson and Robert Williams converting on offensive boards and put putbacks. And Robert Williams just out-hustling the other Brooklyn guys. Because it's not like Brooklyn at time fields a big lineup. Of course, you got Durant, that's 6'11", but he's playing more so along the perimeter, maybe chasing around Jason Tatum. And so that leaves Blake Griffin, Jeff Green, Claxton as well in the paint. And I think for Tristan Thompson and Robert Williams, who found some success for both of them, they're going to need to create second-chance opportunities for Boston. Because outside of Tatum and Kimba, and I mean, one guy that really needs to step up for Boston is going to be Evan Fournier. Because ever since he got traded from Orlando to Boston, there's not one game that I can recall. There's been like a few games here and there where he's played pretty well. But there hasn't been that game like the games he's played in Orlando where Evan Fournier is getting buckets and being that go-to guy at times during the game for Boston like he was in Orlando. I have yet to see that from Evan Fournier. And so especially with Jalen Brown out. And if Kemba's going to continue to struggle in the series, Evan Fournier has to be the guy that steps up and becomes that number two option behind Jason Tatum. And even in those certain situations where Fournier is not being the primary ball handler, he's got to knock down jumpers. I mean, he was two or four from three, but he's got to be a lot more involved as far as being a threat on the offensive end. So, but again, Jason Tatum to me, X factor for Boston. And I think for Brooklyn, outside of the big three and even Blake Griffin, I think the X factor as far as Brooklyn for their continued success is Jeff Green. He seems like the kind of the vocal leader for Brooklyn. And Jeff Green, again, has kind of been a journeyman of the NBA. He's been around 10 teams throughout his 12-year career. His first year, he was a teammate of Durant with Seattle when he was originally the fifth overall pick from Boston before he got traded in that Ray Allen uh, swap and played the the last year in Seattle alongside KD. But Jeff Green does, again, he's another guy that you can throw out on the floor to help spread the floor to let Harden, Kyrie, KD get to the cup. But he's also able to knock you know, knock down perimeter jumpers, hit corner threes, but then also be that vocal leader on the defensive end for, for Brooklyn and to help Brooklyn be successful going forward 
I think Jeff Green's going to have to be that that guy that kind of helps steady the ship when times get rocky. Because again, I'm I'm not necessarily looking at this series as that that point, but I think potentially looking at the next round and playing Milwaukee in the best of seven series against the Bucks, that may be the guy they have to lean onto as far as just calming the storm and keeping the boat steady. So that's that's kind of my take. Again, um, Brooklyn didn't shoot the ball particularly well, but neither did Boston. What kind of kept Boston in game one against Brooklyn was, again, getting second-chance opportunities and some timely baskets from guys like even Jabari Parker, who was released earlier in March by Sacramento and was picked up by Boston. He was able to provide some punch. So maybe that could be another guy that Boston could look to. Um, Again, Tristan Thompson, Robert Williams, uh, providing opportunities on the defensive end as well as the offensive end as well, being a a rim runner and a finisher at the rim when guys collapsed on JT or Kemba. So game two, I think it's going to probably be a higher scoring game for both squads, but I, I see Brooklyn potentially, and this is probably the one time I'll say this, the one game that'll be a blowout. Because one thing that I've enjoyed about the game ones that we've seen so far is that there hasn't been a single blowout. Probably the least contested of the eight games that were played was this game one between Boston and Brooklyn. It ended up being a, a 10-point game, and Boston kept it close for a good portion of the fourth quarter but I think game two you're going to see a lot more efficient game from the big three of Durant Kyrie Harden and even a guy like Joe Harris is probably going to find himself getting it going hitting maybe four or five that's going to be a prediction four or five threes for Joe Harris in game two so but this is the one game I'm going to say is going to be a blowout with Brooklyn going up 2-0 and then the third game of the Saturday slate was, <clears throat> excuse me, the third game was, sorry, the final game. Sorry, we're not third. We're in fourth one. My apologies. And then the final game of Saturday was Portland, the sixth seed out west, playing the Nuggets. And so I'll, I'll try to be a little bit more quicker because I think I've been rambling on this entire podcast. So I apologize if you guys are just listening, but like, get to the point. So. As far as uh, Portland and Denver goes, it, it's quite simple. And the reason why I, I, I said, like, I'm not trying to waste your time because essentially, game time happened. And this series is going to be pretty much controlled by Damian Lillard and Nikola Jokic, respectively. Because looking at that game one for Dame, finished 34, 13 assists, which I believe may be his playoff career high. I'm not. Tyler Shear, I think they mentioned it, but I mean, 10 to 25 from the field, 5 of 12 from the three. But of course, you know that's going to be, that's the guy that, especially in Portland's offense, you do not want to leave him any sort of space coming off a ball screen. Outside of Steph Curry, that's the most feared guy coming off a ball screen. It's probably Damian Lillard, because you leave any sort of daylight, Damian Lillard will make you pay coming off a ball screen. And so, you saw that from him. Of course, he had 34. CJ had 21. 
But I think the big thing that really got them going, especially in the first quarter, was Melo going off for 12 in the first quarter. He eventually ended with 18. But, of course, because it's his former team in Denver, they decided to boo him, and then he goes off 4 or 5 in the first quarter. And so that's probably what makes Portland that scary, is that there are times for Portland where they have three guys that can go get you a bucket. Damian Lillard, C.J. McCollum, Carmelo Anthony and there's a fourth guy and I think as far as x-factors go going forward if Portland does indeed upset Denver and advance to the semis and possibly make a run to the conference finals I think the guy that's got to step up for them has got to be Norman Powell so of course when I talk about Norman Powell you'll think of the midseason trade where Toronto and Portland swapped Norman Powell for Gary Trent Jr. And if you're a Portland fan, Gary Trent Jr., there were times, especially when CJ was out with his foot injury, Gary Trent Jr. was that second option as far as scoring goes, where he would be going off. And then you actually saw it when he was in Toronto, too, where Gary Trent won off for 30 points and then 20 points. And Norman Powell has yet to have a Norman Powell game where he was able to go off, as you've seen when they made their run in 2019, as well as in the bubble, where Norman Powell can be a guy that can get 20-25. Hasn't really happened. There hasn't been a stretch of games where Norman Powell's really put together solid games for Portland, as far as scoring goes. Obviously, he'll probably be doing other parts of the game, but I think for Portland, because Denver is probably going to try to do anything they can to get the ball out of the hands of Damian Lillard, And the same thing for C.J. McCollum. Norman Powell is going to have to be the guy that that makes Denver pay. So Norman Powell in game one, 3 of 11 from the field, 1 of 4 from 3. He finished with 10 points. And I think for game two, if Portland was to, again, come out with a win in Denver against the Nuggets, Norman Powell has to have a much better game than he did because if you look at his plus minus out of the starting five he's the only guy that has a plus minus that's in the negatives and so as a matter of fact as I look at it he's the only guy that has a negative plus minus out of the whole team that out of the guys that played he's the only guy with a negative plus minus so Norman Powell has to do better for Portland and then you look at Denver side Jokic finished with 34, 16 boards. He only had one assist. So I I think in this series, you're probably going to start seeing it more where Jokic is probably going to be less of the distributing Nikola Jokic that you saw throughout the regular season. And he's going to have to be the guy that has to take over as far as scoring, as far as putting his head down and getting himself his own bucket. So him, Michael Porter Jr., who finished with 25, he only shot one of 10 from the from the three-point line. So that's that that's something that may or may not change going in game two. I think those are your top two guys as far as Denver goes, like the guys that had to get you buckets, especially without Jamal Murray, no Will Barton. Obviously, Michael Porter Jr. has been asked to kind of be that third star alongside Jokic and Murray going into the season. We all know especially going into that ridiculously talented 2018 draft. He was touted possibly as the most skilled offensive player coming out of that draft. But, of course, with the back issues, 
had a very slow start to the beginning of his NBA career, but now it's got to be him as far as getting going, getting buckets for Denver. But there's one guy I'm going to throw out as far as an X-Factor that could play a pivotal role if Denver looks to even their series, and that's going to be Marcus Howard. Now, if you guys may have heard of the name Marcus Howard from a previous time, it's probably because you've heard Marcus Howard, the bucket getter from Marquette, when he was at uh, Marquette a couple years ago. Actually, no, sorry. Yeah, a couple years ago when he was at Marquette, nation-leading scorer, could score from anywhere, could shoot from beyond the arc. And you saw spurts of that in the first half where Marcus Howard was able to get his own. And I think for Denver, really, outside of the two names that I mentioned, as far as Jokic and as far as Michael Porter goes, because Austin Rivers has yet to really make a statement as far as getting his own bucket and being able to score more. Because looking at Austin Rivers' stat line, two of six from the field, one of five from three, finished with six points. But Marcus Howard, on the opposite coin, he finished with seven in only 20 minutes, but he only went three or five from the field. I could see Marcus Howard potentially being put into the starting lineup at some point in the series as far as a guy that can get baskets and get buckets for Denver, whether that means he swaps out for Vachuzo Composo or Rivers and he plays in that starting lineup, be able to get something going for Denver as far as scoring goes. But the final score of that game, Portland 123-109. And again, it was close midway through the fourth, and then Portland kind of blew it out of the waters with Dame. So as far as game two, like I mentioned, the the, the names that I mentioned for Denver, they'll, they'll have to give what they can the best best opportunity they can in even series but I don't see Damian Lillard struggling in game two I, I, I honestly am, I'm gonna throw this out there Damian Lillard goes for 40 at least 40 in game two and so because of that and I think Carmelo's gonna have another good game coming off the bench CJ's probably gonna get his 2025 Portland I have not mentioned a single series going 1-1, have I? And that's all right, because I'm going to say it now. This isn't one of those one of those games. Portland goes up 2-0. Portland goes up 2-0. Dame Lillard has over 40. That's that. So that was the Saturday slate of Game 1s. And then going into today, so again, today, this was Sunday, May 23rd. Sunday's. Game one started off with Washington and Philadelphia. And if I could if I could throw this on the screen, Russell Westbrook and Ben Simmons are pretty much that Spider-Man gif that uh, gets posted a lot. And the reason why I say that is because when you try to game plan against Russell Westbrook and you try to game plan against Ben Simmons, they're very similar to Giannis in the fact that you want to force those guys to shoot perimeter jumpers. Because both of them in the open floor, both of them getting to the rim, it's not a good sight if you're the opposition. Because they can... Russell Westbrook's still an explosive athlete. Ben Simmons is a freakish athlete at 6'10". But you want to force those guys out on the perimeter. And so, as I mentioned earlier about the whole 
defensive scheme of the wall as far as guys forming a wall and forcing that ball outside of the paint. That's kind of been almost a mirrored scheme when both Simmons and Westbrook have the ball because you don't want to give those guys a full head of steam. And so when you watch the game earlier, you really wanted to force Westbrook to be a perimeter shooter. And so if you look at Westbrook's stat line, I mean, 7 to 17, 0 of 2 from the three-point line, which tells me he's not settling. And he got a lot of flack for it in Houston, but you have to look at it from a system standpoint. Obviously, when we talk about Houston with Mike D'Antoni, Harden, all that, they shot a volume amount of threes. So, of course, asking Westbrook to kind of be a spot-up shooter in that system not really his game. But of course, the big story, at least for me, for game one, when talking about Washington versus Philadelphia, was the play of Tobias Harris. So, Tobias Harris, he had 28 at halftime. And he ended up finishing, excuse me, he ended up finishing with 37 points, 15 to 29 from the field, and over 37 minutes, 2 of 5 from the three point line, 6 rebounds, 2 assists, and overshadowing a pretty productive game from Embiid 9 of 16 from the field 12 of 13 from the foul line 30 points and the reason why I say that is again looking at that game of course the attention was going to be on the MVP candidate in Joel Embiid of course started off the game Alex Lund Daniel Gafford eventually they threw a lot of bodies at Embiid they eventually doubled And I'll get into that a little bit as far as my X-Factors for the rest of the series for the Sixers. But Tobias Harris, again, 28 points in the first half. I think he was 12 of, I believe, 12 of 19 from the field at halftime. And so when you look at Philadelphia, obviously they've kind of retooled their roster to where it's surrounding shooters and surrounding perimeter-oriented players around Embiid and letting Embiid work around the post and working on the block a lot more often than he was doing in the previous few seasons with Brett Brown. And so Tobias Harris as well being paired back up with his old coach in L.A. with Doc Rivers kind of helped elevate his game back to what we expect him to do. And again, I made an argument, I believe in the first episode or two, how Tobias Harris probably should have been another all-star nod for Philadelphia. And you're starting to see why Tobias Harris is such a vital part for Philadelphia. Because again, you look at Embiid, and especially when you look at Ben Simmons, Ben Simmons, you're not going to ask him to take your guy one-on-one around the perimeter and hit contested jump shots. Ben Simmons' game is to facilitate and get to the cup. Push the tempo, get stops on the end, create easy points off of turnovers, off of fast breaks, half-court set. Like I mentioned with Milwaukee, with Giannis, Giannis is not going to be the the primary go-to guy for Milwaukee as far as like creating his own bucket unless it's in the post. Philadelphia, you have Tobias Harris who can get his own basket. And so, again, 37 points. Speaking of another 30-point performance, Bradley Beal, 33, 13 of 23 from the field. He didn't shoot the ball particularly well from the three-point line, only one of six. It's kind of been a theme for a lot of uh, a lot of like the star players as far as 
perimeter shooting. Hasn't been a lot of like standout shooting performances from the perimeter. But again, 1-6 from the 3, 10 rebounds, 6 assists, 6 turnovers. Kind of had to ask him to really take care of the load of the scoring because again, with Westbrook kind of being put in this hole as far as they're going to pack line a wall defensively for Westbrook. Beal's obviously going to be the go-to scorer for Washington. Always has been the entire season. Six turnovers because they're going to try to force him to be a playmaker as well. So, as far as X-Factors for both teams. So, again, I alluded to earlier for the Sixers. To me, Danny Green is the X-Factor. You could also make a case for Seth Curry. But for Danny Green... And when you look at the Sixers, so again, we kind of talked about the trade that had Josh Richardson get sent to Dallas in exchange for Seth Curry. The Sixers have kind of retooled their roster to where their primary focus is surrounding Embiid with shooters. So a lot of perimeter shooting. And of course, we obviously know Seth Curry as far as his shooting prowess, his accuracy, but then also Danny Green has had a reputation in the playoffs of being one of the best three-point shooters. Obviously, when he was in San Antonio, Toronto, and then last year with L.A., although he did struggle a bit at times with the Lakers. But Danny Green is a guy, he's what you consider your your modern 3 and D player. Knocks down perimeter jumpers, especially from the corner, which is very important. And the reason why I say that is because, especially when you watch the game, if you watched it, and B would catch the ball in the post, and Washington would send a double. One of the hardest places to recover and rotate out is that that ball gets sent to the opposite corner and Danny Green has made a living again as I mentioned especially in San Antonio when that ball got hopped and skipped around with the Spurs Danny Green was on the receiving end of a corner three and it's not going to change especially with Philadelphia where he's going to be on the receiving end of these doubles or a kick out from Ben Simmons penetrating or Tobias Harris penetrating in the paint Danny's going to be the recipient and so that being said if Danny Green can consistently hit knockdown threes, consistently hit jumpers off of those penetrations or off those doubles. Philadelphia has then really hit home run with what they were trying to focus on in the offseason as far as surrounding Embiid, surrounding Ben Simmons with perimeter shooting. And so, to me, I think Danny Green. I think Seth Curry, granted, Obviously, he's kind of like the more the fancier, fresh coat of paint that people want to be enamored with. But I think Danny Green as well, because while Seth Curry may be a better shooter, he's also the bigger liability on the defensive end. So with that being said, that's where Danny Green steps in. So again, the 3 and D, he's one of those guys that's kind of like your traditional model 3 and D players as far as being able to contribute on both ends of the floor. So that's why I say for... Philadelphia, it's going to be Danny Green. And then for Washington, it's Rui Hachimura. Because throughout the entire year, of course, your primary go-to guys, Beal and Westbrook, they've kind of needed another guy. They kind of needed a third guy to get some buckets for him as well, especially during stretches. And Hachimura has had stretches where he was able to do that for Washington. Hasn't really had that as of late, especially towards like the latter 10 games of the regular season. And then in the play-in, had some moments against Indiana. But 
especially if Washington wants to have success. If Washington wants to extend this series, Hachimura has got to be that guy. So, that being said, my prediction for Game 2, the, the, the trend's going to stay. I'm sorry. I'm not, I don't think I'm picking an even series quite yet. But, with that being said, Philadelphia, I think Embiid's probably going to be the focal point of Game 2. I think Tobias Harris will probably have a 20-piece. He'd probably have 20-22. Seth Curry, Danny Green, one of those guys. Even Korkmaz may come off the bench. They'll hit you know 15 or 16, hit four or five threes. But it's going to be Embiid because I think the big thing that I'm noticing with Washington, there's not really a single solitary guy on their roster, whether it's Gafford, Alex Len, whoever. I don't think one single person on their squad can stop Embiid. Really, as a matter of fact, there's really no one in the league that can stop Embiid in the post. And so I think because of certain things that may happen during the game, as far as Philly hitting more perimeter jumpers, that's going to open up Embiid. He's probably going to take more than 16 shots. He may get to the line as often as he did in today's game. So with that being said, I'm going to say Embiid powers the Sixers, It'll probably be another close contest, but Philadelphia goes up 2-0 in their series. So, that was game two. That was actually game one of Sunday. <clears throat> game two, probably the matchup that everyone's been looking forward to <clears throat> out of the West is the seven seed defending champion, Los Angeles Lakers against the two-seed Phoenix Suns. And I know there's going to be people that are listening to this or people that are watching this that are probably going to ask my opinion about this whole shoulder issue with LeBron, blah, blah, blah. I'm not going to talk about that because I want to focus on the basketball. I want to focus on what actually transpired in the game. And what happened in the game was Devin Booker could get his any which way you wanted to against the Lakers. And so when you look at <clears throat> D-Book, Book at 34, 13 to 26, 3 of 7 from the 3, finished with 34 points, 7 rebounds, 8 assists. And the thing that really stood out to me, of course, when Chris Paul went down with his shoulder injury earlier on in the first half, obviously that took a lot of the primary ball handling into the hands of Booker. And so, and that was kind of the the trend that was happening with Phoenix over the previous three seasons, especially in the bubble. There wasn't another guy that could bring the ball up that you can consistently say, hey, set up our offense. It was mainly Booker, hey, let's run our, let's run our set. You have to bring the ball up, then you get yours. And so there was that stretch where Booker was able to just go off, get his. And I think another thing that I want to point out, I think what made it so vital for Phoenix's win was the play of DeAndre Ayton. Now, again, DeAndre Ayton, the former number one overall pick from that 2018 draft that I alluded to earlier, with Michael Porter Jr., Trey Young, Luka Doncic, Jaron Jackson Jr. Again, stars to the draft. But, of course, a lot of pressure was on DeAndre Ayton because, of course, Phoenix didn't pick Luka. It's kind of been the same thing with Sacramento when they talk about Marvin Bagley. Marvin Bagley has all the talent in the world, but he's not Luka. But DeAndre Ayton, I think, has finally found the best way to be a very vital contributor for the Suns, where he's not the guy that you're going to primarily run a lot of your offense through, but 21 points and 16 rebounds, eight of those on the offensive end. 
And I know there's going to be people that are going to say, well, he outplayed Anthony Davis, but that's because both those guys are playing two completely different games. By that I mean... Both guys are being asked to do two completely different things. Anthony Davis is going to be relied upon to be a primary scorer for the Lakers, especially when LeBron's not on the floor, or even at times LeBron's going to distribute to AD because AD, his skill set would fit that of a primary scorer. Where DeAndre Ayton, if he's working off pick and roll with CP, Book, Cameron Payne, all those other ball handlers for Phoenix, and create second-chance opportunities, clean the glass. Games like that where he's getting 21 points, 60 rebounds, but not getting in foul trouble. Because I think that's been the number one issue for DeAndre Ayton, is that DeAndre Ayton has found himself in a lot of foul trouble. He'll get himself going and then have to sit out because he gets in early foul trouble in the first half and then in the third and fourth quarter. But not, not today. And so that was a key part for them. But, of course, I talked about Chris Paul and I talked about his injury. It really did affect him. Once he kept going in and out of the locker room and eventually coming back. And that's probably going to be a big question mark going forward was, is the severity of the injury to Chris Paul? What does that look like? Is it, was it a pretty bad stinger? What's the treatment going to look like? How is that going to affect him long-term in the series, affect him in game two? And so that's something to look out for when they eventually meet again. But as far as LA, so again, I talked about how LeBron and AD, they combined for 31 points. So it wasn't the best game for both of them. They combined 11 of 29 from the field. Didn't shoot the ball particularly well from either the three point line or the free throw line. So from the three point line, they combined three of nine and then six of 11 from the free throw line. Again, I've made this a theme as far as free throw shooting. It's very important. Obviously kids, if you're listening, free throws are very important. They're free. Converting those will give you easier ways to get points in the box score. Just throwing that out there. So keep that in mind. But again, I think what also made it kind of alarming, when you look at AD on the floor, I think what Phoenix ended up doing, which doesn't happen often, especially with a team that also has LeBron, is that Phoenix forced Anthony Davis to give the ball up through doubling. So whether it's Jay Crowder doubling down, Mikel Bridges doubling down, whoever else was on the floor... They tried to force the ball out of Anthony Davis. And even DeAndre Ayton, to his credit, held his own against Anthony Davis. So, I think going forward, you may or may not see Phoenix continue to do that more because, and I point this out, L.A. shot an abysmal 7-26 from the three-point line. So, that's just under 27% from the three-point line. 7-26 is not good. And so... especially when you're asking LeBron to shoot seven threes a game, that's not his strongest part of his game. And when you have guys like Contavious Caldwell-Pope, Alex Caruso, Kyle Kuzma, Dennis Schroeder, all these other guys that help spread the floor, it's not very helpful when they're not knocking down their shots. And so when I talk about X-Factors, Contavious Caldwell-Pope, when you look at last year in the playoffs, He wasn't shooting a high volume of threes, but he was making timely threes, and he was able to knock down shots off ball movement, off doubles from LeBron or from AD. But again, he shot one of seven from the three-point line. If LA is looking to find success and rebound 
in Game 2, KCP has got to be the guy that knocks down perimeter jumpers. So, that's my X factor, not only for Game 2, but going forward through the rest of the series is KCP if he continues to knock down wide open threes. Because a lot of those shots that he took out of those seven, all seven were for the most part wide open looks. And they just were not falling. So, Game 2... You'll probably see those those same shots that he's missing now. They're going to fall. And then for for Phoenix, I think their X factor. I mean, obviously, you're going to talk about the the right shoulder of Chris Paul, but I look at a guy like Michael Bridges. Same thing. He helps spread the floor for Phoenix. If DeAndre Ayton's going to look to be that primary rim runner in those pick and rolls with Book and primary rim runner with the pick and roll with Chris Paul. Mikel Bridges is normally the guy that's spotting up. He had a he's had a career year so far. You could argue, you know, he could be in the running for most improved player. But Mikel Bridges would have to be another guy that continues to knock down shots off those same ball movements, whether it's Book just getting his and getting doubled, kick out to Mikel Bridges. That's gonna be his thing that he's gonna be living off. That's gonna be his bread and butter going on through the rest of the series. So my prediction for game two, I think this is where the champs bounce back. And of course, people are going to be, you know, cautious because it's, oh no, LA's down 1 0 in the series. But that's the same thing that happened last year. It happened in the series against Houston. It happened in the series against Portland. It also happened in the same series against, no, it did not happen in the same series against Denver. But I expect the Lakers to bounce back much better effort on the defensive end, and their shooters are going to be able to knock down jumpers. And I think Anthony Davis, too, will also have a bounce back. So I expect AD to have an AD game. Expect KCP, Caruso, Kuzma, Wesley Matthews even, who's getting more run. Expect those guys to knock down threes. LA evens a series 1-1. See, there I did it, guys. I did it. I actually have a prediction for a series going 1-1. And so, final two games. Again, I'll try to wrap this up pretty quickly. So, in the Mecca. So, again, I was talking about why the live crowds and having fans in the, in the arenas are so vital. Exhibit A, Madison Square Garden. Probably the most iconic arena in NBA. Outside of the TD Garden in Boston. But, Atlanta and New York. That crowd was rocking. And so... Again, that's a 4-5 series between the Hawks and the Knicks. Identical records they finished with at the end of the regular season. But, Trey Young. If there's a guy not named Steph and a guy not named Damian Lillard, as far as guys that you want to close out hard on when it comes to ball screens or else they're going to kill you from the three, Trey Young is arguably that guy. And so, Trey Young, especially in the fourth quarter, closed out the game by making critical passes. There's one to Bogdan Bogdanovich to put them up one. And then a few plays later, fortunate deflection that got to Bogey, who hit a game-tying three, which tied it up at 103 with about a minute and a half left in regulation. But Trey Young was just living off of the pick-and-roll. And so Trey Young... This might be the series where he just gets his 30, gets his 10-plus assists. But for Atlanta, it's going to stop and start with him. 
And as I mentioned, Bogey is going to be very vital to that because, again, he was brought in as a restricted free agent this past offseason to be another perimeter score for Atlanta because that's something that Atlanta has not really had with Trey Young because it's been Trey Young, John Collins, Clint Capella. And when they've added guys like Bogdanovich, Danilo Gallinari, it, it added more emphasis to we need more guys to help spread the floor besides just having Trey Young try to create his own from 25, 30 feet out and then just have rim runners. Of course, Collins has expanded his game more to the perimeter. But as I mentioned before, Bogey had his capability of being a guy that could get 20, 25, even 30 points when he was with Sacramento. But, of course, Sacramento had a slew of other scores in the backcourt. De'Aaron Fox, Buddy Heald, and, of course, Sacramento went with Buddy Heald and signed to that four-year deal, which left Bogey kind of hanging high and dry. But in a situation like Atlanta, where he could be that second perimeter scorer, that helps them out. And again, what's also really cool about it, as I mentioned, Devin Booker and Trey Young, playoff debuts, and both of them came out with big, big games. And speaking of big games and their playoff debuts, we'll get to that other guy in a minute. But another guy that people were hoping would have a big game as far as their playoff debut for the Knicks was Julius Randle. Obviously, Julius Randle, most improved player nominee, People even wanted to throw him in the MVP discussion. But Julius Randle in his playoff debut, 6 of 23, 2 of 6 from 3, 15 points, 12 rebounds. It wasn't him. He wasn't the story. He wasn't the reason why the Knicks stayed in the game. And what's ironic about this, and the reason why I say this is ironic, is because when you think of Tom Thibodeau-led teams, so you think about Chicago, and you think about Minnesota, it's always been heavily predicated on the starting five. Very limited rotation. Not a lot of guys would get runs outside of like that six or seven man rotation. And he's been notoriously known for that. People have ridiculed him for that. Kind of led. Some people speculated that because of the amount of wear and tear that he put on a guy like Derrick Rose the year after his MVP season was what led to his ACL in that playoff series back in 2012 against Philadelphia. And the reason why I bring this up is because it was the bench. It was really the bench that kept New York in the game. And not only that, but during that stretch when New York was leading in the second half, it was because of the bench. So when you think about it, Derrick Rose, the aforementioned guy, former MVP, but perhaps the biggest story was Alec Burke off the bench had 27, nine of 13 from the field, 3 of 5 from the three-point line. And another guy who had his moments in the second quarter is Emmanuel Quickly. And, of course, Emmanuel Quickly, one of the more exciting young players in the Eastern Conference and in the NBA. And this is when I'm talking about when the crowd and the fans were just getting super rowdy in Madison Square Garden. There was a run that was essentially Emmanuel Quickly and Derrick Rose where Emmanuel Quickly was just getting his, his buckets. He only had 10, but they were 10 exciting points, especially... If you heard it in Madison Square Garden, the place was going absolutely insane. And, of course, Derrick Rose. I mentioned in the previous episode how he's going to be a very vital part as far as can New York find playoff success for the first time in 
nine years since Melo, Amari, Tyson Chandler in that group. Derrick Rose is a steady hand at the point guard position. Elvick Payton, granted, while he's had some moments during the regular season, he's not a guy that can generate offense. Same thing with a guy like Frank Nittalikina. He's really going to be in there for defensive purposes, but he's not a guy that's going to help generate offense for New York. As of course, New York is more known for their defensive prowess. It's Tom Thibodeau. It's a Tom Thibodeau-led team. This is what you expect. So, a guy like Derrick Rose and a guy like Alec Burtz and even Emmanuel quickly to an extent. And even for a stretch during that second quarter, Obi Toppin, the rookie. Again, there's a lot of ironic things when I talk about this because, again, Tom Thibodeau has had a reputation for, again, limited rotation as well as not playing a lot of young guys. But that's all changed this year when he's been with New York. <clears throat> again, quickly, Toppin. Toppin was the highly touted first-round pick for the Knicks. He's getting some run in the playoffs, and he produced a little bit. So... I think going forward, obviously we're going to talk about Julius Randle, how he's going to bounce back. You can also get a guy like R.J. Barrett, kind of been like the number two guy in New York. He had 14. And again, for me, the X factor for the Knicks, I think it's got to be Reggie Bullock because as far as perimeter shooting, there's not a whole lot of guys on the Knicks team that can stretch the floor outside of maybe Alec Burks when he gets it going, and even Emmanuel quickly. But as far as guys that get a regular amount of minutes in that rotation, it's got to be Reggie Bullock, who went 0 for 5 from the game. So Reggie Bullock, I think, in order for him to continue to get minutes, because he only played 18 and a half minutes in game one, if he's able to knock down perimeter jumpers consistently, because I think going into game two, Julius Randle is probably going to try to be more aggressive. He's going to try to attack the rim more, which means the defense is going to collapse because it's not like Atlanta is this high-octane defensive team. They're more known for getting their buckets. They're more known for their scoring. So it's going to come down to can Reggie Bull get his because if not, then that's going to be Alec Burke time. It's going to be Emmanuel quickly time. So if Reggie Bull can knock down some jumpers for New York, then that can help turn the tide. And then for Atlanta, as I mentioned, Bogey, Bogdan Bogdanovich, again, if he's able to provide that number two scoring punch besides Trey Young, because Trey Young could get another 30 against New York, especially how he operates in the pick and roll. But if Bogey's able to capitalize on that pick and roll with Capella, with Collins, diving to the rim, collapsing the defense, collapsing the weak side, if Trey Young's able to find Bogey spotting up, that's going to be his opportunities to make an impact. And even when Trey's not in the game and it's Bogey being a primary ball handler, that's going to be an opportunity for Bogey to help provide that go-to guy when Trey's not on the floor. So that being said, game two. Again, we're back in New York. I, I think that'll be this will be another even series one to one. And the reason why I say that is I think Julius Randle's gonna have a bounce back game, and Derrick Rose is probably going to be the catalyst to kind of help spark things for the bench unit, and probably even get more run than say a guy like um, Elvert Payton, or even a guy like Reggie Bullock, to where. Derrick Rose is going to be the primary go-to guy in the fourth quarter because Burke, while he's been a revelation for New York, he's also got his tricky moments where he'll go off for 25 or go off for 27, but then there'll be games where he's 
two for 12, two for 13. It happens with a lot of players in the NBA. And I think this might be one of those games where Alec Burke ends up hitting a cold streak. So again, Julius Randle, Derrick Rose eventually lead New York. And another thing too is that second chance opportunities, whether it's Taj Gibson, Obi Toppin, Nerlens Noel, guys like that are probably going to create second chance opportunities for New York. And I think despite Trey having another big game, New York evens the series one-to-one going into Atlanta later on in the week. And the final game, as I mentioned, we just wrapped it up a little while ago. The number eight seed, the Memphis Grizzlies, who battled in two playing games, the first one against San Antonio, and then the second one against Steph Curry and the Warriors, find themselves in Utah. And, of course, the big storyline going into the game was the potential return of Donovan Mitchell after missing 16 straight games. However, late scratch, Donovan Mitchell didn't play. So that obviously meant a guy like Joe Ingles, who's consistently been in and out of the lineup as far as taking in the primary ball handling for Donovan Mitchell or Mike Conley when he wasn't in, he stepped in. But of course, the story wasn't about Donovan Mitchell at the end of the night. The story of it was how Memphis played a lot harder than Utah, how Memphis really played more freely. And, of course, they had that underdog mentality. They have nothing to lose, especially in this series. Everyone's counting them out because Utah's been the best team throughout the entire regular season. But Memphis came in, and it wasn't just Dylan Brooks. Dylan Brooks had 31. It wasn't John Morant, especially in the fourth quarter. It wasn't just him, despite the fact that Jaw closed it out, had 26, shot 11-21. Dylan Brooks shot 13-26. But it was really a collective group because – there were times, especially during that game, Kyle Anderson. Kyle Anderson needs to get a lot of respect for what he's done. He's kind of been that glue guy for Memphis. Because especially when you look at Memphis, Memphis is the second youngest team in the league. I believe the youngest team is Charlotte. Kyle Anderson has had experience playing playoff basketball when he was with San Antonio. Slow-mo. Slow-mo. Stat line, 14 points, 4 rebounds, 3 assists, and 6 steals. Now, he was a very critical part in the play-in game against Golden State where understanding that how Golden State's offense ran, where he was able to get deflections, cause havoc as far as getting Steph in and out of rhythm, even though Steph still had his 30-plus. But Kyle Anderson, he's pretty much how I would compare Kyle Anderson. He's an unathletic Andre Karolinko. If you guys know Andre Karolinko, if you guys remember who Andre Karolinko was from the Utah Jazz, AK-47 was pretty much a guy that could do a lot of things on both ends of the floor. He was a good playmaker, wasn't a good shooter. He improved in certain parts of his career as being a decent three-point shooter, but made smart, heady plays on the defensive end. Obviously, I'm not saying Kyle Anderson was on the level of a defensive player as Andre Karolinko, but he's a guy that does everything good. Doesn't do like one or two things particularly great, say like the athleticism and creating you know baskets to the cup and in the paint like John Morant, but he does every little thing well. And so, but again, it was also kind of, it was neat to see a traditional big man battle where it's not the bigs that we know of in today's game with Jonas Valanciunas versus Rudy Gobert. 
But again, you kind of talk about the the group collective effort of Memphis. Even at the end of the third, going into the fourth quarter, the bench made some plays. Grayson Allen, Desmond Bain, D'Anthony Melton, Tyus Jones, they made plays too when Jaw and Dylan Brooks were sitting on the bench to start the fourth quarter, even though Utah eventually made a run thanks to Bojan Bogdanovich. Don't get confused with Bogdan, Bojan. And so, again, Memphis is playing a lot more loosely, unlike Utah. And what, what kind of was very eye-opening, of course, Utah probably been the best three-point shooting team throughout the entire season. Made 17 threes, average 17 made threes a game. Numerous guys shooting over 38 to 39% from the three-point line. However, tonight, they shot 12 of 47. 47 attempts. Only 12 makes. That's 25.5%. And, of course, part of that could be accumulated because of the fact that Donovan Mitchell wasn't there. Obviously, Donovan Mitchell is a very good to borderline elite score who can get his own, create his own offense. Whereas in the games without Donovan Mitchell, especially during that stretch, what they've gotten used to, but they don't have a lot of options as far as guys that can just go and get their own, especially in a half-court set. So with that being said, and the reason why I'm going to point this out, is my X factor for Utah is Bojan Bogdanovic because without Donovan Mitchell, you're not going to rely on a guy like Rudy Gobert to be your primary scorer, even though he's the next best player. Mike Conley you could look to as a steady hand as far as getting his own, but as far as a guy that could get his own on multiple phases of the floor, Bojan Bogdanovic could be that guy. He was missing a good portion of last season in the bubble, and that may have led to Utah getting outsed in the first round. You know, last year in the bubble, they were up 3-1 to Denver. I'm sure you heard the 3-1 deficit numerous times during the bubble. But Bojan is a guy who is a very capable scorer. He's not the most athletic. I know I've mentioned a time or two ago, Joe Ingles is kind of the same thing. Not a super athletic guy but somehow still finds ways to put the ball in the basket. Bojan Bogdanovic is going to be have to be that go-to guy, the go-to scorer late in games. If it's not Mike Conley, it's got to be Bogdanovic. And if Donovan Mitchell, if he doesn't come back game two, and even in game two, because asking for a guy that's sat out now 17 straight games to just try to come in and kind of get back into the flow of things and kind of do what they're typically accustomed to doing, it's going to be very difficult. It's a very tough ask to ask Donovan Mitchell to be, hey, go get us, roll the ball out to you, go get us 30, carry us to a win. It's going to be very difficult to ask someone like that to just go in and do that. But that means that onus falls on Boyan. So with that being said, that's my X factor for Utah. And then for Memphis, again, I, I really think as much as I want to say Dylan Brooks for the amazing play that he's had, especially the two playing games and tonight, I'm still looking at Jaron Jackson Jr. Because Jaron Jackson Jr., not because he's part of this draft that I keep alluding to this entire episode, but because he missed practically the entire regular season outside of the last 11 regular season games, 
as far as like perimeter shooting goes with Memphis, again, Memphis was not known, has not been known to be a perimeter shooting team. Memphis is known for paint points, second chance opportunities, fast breaks, because they don't have the best perimeter shooters on their team. Dylan Brooks, up to this point, you wouldn't say, oh man, that guy's a major threat from three. He can knock down threes, but it's not like, oh man, that guy's going to be a 40 plus percent three-point shooter, or he's going to knock down seven threes a game. But Jaron Jackson is a guy that, going into last year, if we look back at last year, he was a guy that helped stretch the floor for Memphis. So maybe he's still trying to get his legs under him, especially trying to get his legs back under him in playoff like situations with the play-in and, of course, game one tonight. that that That's going to be a big question mark because I think Jonas Valanciunas is still going to eat up space in the paint and battle with Gobert and create those second-chance opportunities. So that's probably going to be up to guys like Jaron Jackson as far as can he help spread the floor and let John Morant get to the bucket, let Dylan Brooks get to the bucket, let Jonas Valanciunas get post-catches. If Dylan... Sorry, not Dylan Brooks. If Jaron Jackson's able to do that, then you're looking at a guy that helps add another element for Memphis. But with that being said, I'm going to end this prediction with my prediction of game two. And that is Utah evens it up one to one. The reason why I say that, not because of any one particular player, but I think Utah is not going to shoot 12 of 47 from the three point line again in this series. Maybe. I'd be shocked if they do. But I think Utah's going to shoot better from the three. They're not going to turn over the ball as much. I think they're going to make their adjustments. And because of that, I'm not going to say, like, oh, John Morant's going to struggle, or maybe even Dylan Brooks has an off night. But with that being said, I'm going to say Utah evens the series one-to-one, and that is my prediction. So I'm going to end the podcast, kind of give you guys a bit of a rundown as far as the schedule for this upcoming week. So starting tomorrow... So on Monday, we've got at 4.30, we have game two. Game two of the Miami-Milwaukee series. That's at 4.30 Pacific Standard Time. And then game two of the Portland-Denver series. That's at 7 p.m. And then Tuesday, game two of the Boston-Brooklyn series. That's at 4.30 p.m. And then L.A. at Phoenix, 7 p.m. That's game two. And then game two of the Dallas Clippers series at 7.30 on Tuesday. And then kind of run down Wednesday. Game two of Washington, Philadelphia at 4. Then Atlanta at New York, 4.30. And then finishing up the Wednesday's games, it'll be Memphis at Utah at 7 p.m. And then we're going to dive more into game three, game four. I'm going to try to do a live stream. So you guys want to hop on YouTube again please hit that notification button if you guys want to join in. I'll let you guys know what's going to happen. Also, Instagram page, Nothing But Backboard Podcast, in the link. Of course, all the links of the people I've mentioned, of course, Molly, Easy, Raza, all of that stuff you'll see in the link below. But, of course, thank you guys so much. And for those that are in high school and middle school that are graduating, congratulations to you guys. You guys have made it through school. Keep up the good work. Keep doing all that you do. Again, I'm your host, Joey Jergo. Episode number seven, nothing but backboard podcast. We are wrapping it up right now. I will see you guys in the next episode. Peace. Ha, ha, ha.